The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from John 14, 18 through 31. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but... I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, um, I don't know if uh, you um, are a Saturday Night Live fan. I, um, I haven't watched it in a while. You know, it's one of those shows that has kind of grown and waned in popularity. Um, and I remember watching it uh, years ago, kind of more in its heyday, <clears throat> um, and uh, particularly in the 80s, uh, 90s, uh, even the 70s, it had some amazing uh, moments, and sometimes they try and replay uh, those uh, moments. But, you know, we know a lot of the actors from Saturday Night Live that have grown into, like, major actors like Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd all those. And, you know, some of the stories, though, um, um, and and some of the people that were famous and major um, actors and actresses uh, from that time, though, um, have passed away. And one of those who was uh, huge of notoriety was a woman named Gilda Radner. Uh, She died in 1989 of cancer at a young age of 42, I believe. And um, she was amazing. She was one of these... uh, that was kind of the, the uh, you know, Carol Burnett type, kind of a, um, early on before um, 
a lot of the, uh, she was kind of a bridge actress of comedy, and uh, she had received her cancer diagnosis some, sometime before that, and uh, as she was going, you know, she had gotten married, and she was kind of, um, kind of out of the spotlight dealing with her cancer, and then just came in remission. A lot of her friends uh, missed her, and one of those was Bill Murray, who talks about her uh, and their relationship. I think they even dated at one point years before that. Uh, but they were at a party at, um, at Lorraine Newman's uh, apartment in New York. And, um, you know, at that party, Gilda Radner shows up. And it's a moment where everybody's in the room. They're, they're major, um, you know, actors. And like Monty Python was there, Sam Kinison, some of these, these huge names of comedy in that day. And when Gilda shows up, everybody's just like, wow, because no one's seen her. And she looks very different. Uh, she's thinner. Uh, they know that she's battling still with cancer. And the story that Bill Murray talks about uh, as, as Gilda says, well, as she kind of comes and there's uncomfortable moments for her, for Gilda, as, as they're all so glad to see her, but she says, I, I, I gotta go. And she kind of wants to leave. Bill Murray uh, does this and, and grabs her. And the story is funny. Listen to what happens. <laughs> so he says, so we picked her up, <clears throat> threw her over our shoulder, and we started carrying her around in a way that we could only do with her. We carried her up and down the stairs, around the house repeatedly for a long time until I was exhausted. And then Danny, that is Dan Aykroyd, did it for a while, and then I did it again. And we just keep, kept carrying her. We did it in teams. We carried her around, but like upside down in every way and almost like a, a, a piece of luggage. And we would walk up to people and say, she's leaving. This could be it. Now, come on, this, this could be the last time we see her. Gilda's leaving. And remember that she was very sick. Hello, hello. You know, only as a bunch of comedians and actors could carry around someone who has a cancer diagnosis say, hello, she's leaving. We might not see her again. And it said that as they were carrying her around, making her say goodbye to every single person in the place, not just once, but over and over and over, that Gilda started laughing crying. She was just enjoying herself so much, it said. It said, she's, she's leaving, and I don't know if you've said goodbye to her. And, and we say goodbye to the same people 10, 20 times, you know. And because of these people, we're really funny. Every person we, we drag her up to just five minutes on, would spend five minutes on her with Gilda upside down, kind of a tortured position, it said, which she absolutely loved. It was just one of the best parties, this is what Bill Murray said, it was one of the best parties I'd ever been to in my life. I will always remember it. It was the last time I saw her. So as we've been reading a, a new series, it's called The Upper Room Discourse. It's a moment where it is actually the last time the disciples will spend with Jesus before he goes to the cross. And, and, and throughout it, if you've, if you've been, uh, if you've read it before, or if you've ever, it's chapters 13 to, to 17 in, in the book of John, John does what the other gospels don't do. He slows way down. He takes a moment where they may skip through some moment, some parts of that discourse, but he slows way down so you can actually experience, feel, smell, taste the room itself. And if 
if you read these chapters, and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, if we've looked at a couple of them already, you'll read how much Jesus is spending on how he's leaving. He talks about, I'm leaving. Even this one, and we've mentioned it. He's constantly talking about, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And the room is sad. It is a very sad room. And what Jesus does here differently, in, in a very different way, turns it on its head, but he, he says, I'm not just leaving, but I'll come back. It's not just a goodbye party, because throughout his ministry, Jesus has made moments of discussion about him leaving, going to the cross, these things that, that are kind of really odd to them. In fact, they'll, they'll speak back to him and say, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why would you say things like that? And the room is so sad. Again, he has to comfort their troubled hearts, it says. And so he has to get to their, their hearts and say, it's okay, I'm leaving, but I'm returning. There's a purpose for why I'm going. You know, unlike what we're used to, and even in a joking way, trying to make a leaving something that's funny or something we can palate, something we can take in, it's still so heartbreaking. Even as Gilda was being carried around the room, person to person, over and over and over, it was still the reality of we're never going to see her again, and they wouldn't. What, what's, what's going on in this room? What is Jesus doing differently? What Jesus is setting up is exactly how he begins it. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. There is such a relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. He's even mentioned this a couple times. Such a familiarity, such a love that he's saying, I will not leave you. And in fact, you won't even be left as orphans as those who have been lost without those who love them, care for them, parents. But I will come back to you. And I will come back to you physically, tangibly. It, it, it shows even with all the moments that we've seen, even Judas, not the Iscariot Judas, but another one in this passage, one of the disciples. There are so many moments where the disciples interrupt Jesus. They say, theologians, as I've read through this, that that's a very unusual thing for disciples to do. You don't interrupt. If there's a discourse going on, you sit as a pupil, and you learn. But, but there has been such a familiarity, such a love, such a friendship and care that has developed that Jesus has done with them that they feel this freedom to interject. This freedom to say, but where are you going? Why are you leaving us? What's going to happen to us? Because they're so troubled. And yet Jesus says, I am coming back. As little children, he says, I am coming back. The deep love. So we're going to look at this four brief, quick things. We're going to skip over these. Now, some of these things we've looked at already, uh, and we're going to look at them again, but there are four things in this passage that we're going to mine out together as we look at this. Where he is, the resurrection, what he says, his commandments, who he sends, the Holy Spirit, and what he gives, his peace. And we're going to run through these, and these are themes that run through the whole discourse. And so in a, in a sense, it's almost like he's re-upping his outline of what he's giving them, is what we see. First, he begins just by saying, where he is, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live 
you also will live. What is Jesus talking about? This, this leaving and, and, and coming back, it's, it's got to pull on not their, just their heartstrings, but just their minds. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why would you say this? For, a, a, for them to understand him telling them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, is really important to them because their love for him, but also their idea of what he's talking about is really about the resurrection, He's speaking to them about the fact that he is physically going to leave them and he's actually physically going to come back. But that's still unusual to them because for the Jewish mindset there, the resurrection wasn't something that that one person talked about doing. It was something that happened at the end of the age. There was one big thing and everybody kind of, the the resurrection was one big moment, not something that someone could, could handle on themselves as an individual. Even when Jesus talked about going to the cross and then raising again, they were consistently confused by that teaching. It it didn't fit in their categories. They constantly had to ask him, okay, why are you talking about crosses? Why are you talking about raising from the dead? No one really grasped that. But that's what he's getting to them. He's saying, where am I going? I'm going because I need to go. My body has to endure the crucifixion, and there will be a resurrection, and I will come back to you. Look, we are going to hit Easter in about a month from now, okay? (laughs) So I'm not going to give you an Easter sermon right yet. But what Jesus is getting to here is how important the physicality, just this one part of it, the physicality of the resurrection is. That Jesus is physical, and that it brings them hope it encourages them. There's a great article called uh, Hope in a Cynical Age written by a guy named Wade Bradshaw. He says, sometimes such hope is almost subversive um, given the nature of our culture and the pervasiveness of cynical mind. When people meet hope embodied in a person, they find it both attractive and repelling. (laughs) Hope repels because sometimes it seems glib and shallow and naive. And it also opens us up to the danger of once more being disappointed. We're so used to hope being something like, I hope this happens, a wish of something going on, something of the future. But when Jesus is talking about the resurrection, he's not talking about a hope. He's talking about this is going to be a reality. The resurrection is in me. This is why he spends so much time even leading up to this saying, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He directs it back to himself. That keeping this hope isn't just a, a human sense or a potential, it's a, or a spiritual thing, but a reality. It's a tangibility. It's something that gets deep within us. See, hope, most of what we're used to is, is a temperament. It, it can be a feeling. It can be those kind of things. But what if hope is fixed? See, biblical hope in the resurrection and what Jesus is trying to tell them where he is and what the resurrection means is that his physical, tangible body, what they know is true, leaving them, will return to them, not just in some sort of idea, not in a wish fulfillment, but in a reality. This is actually why in, later on he says to them, which I think is really interesting, he says, if you understood in verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater 
than I. Why would they rejoice? One of the things we don't think of often is where's Jesus' body now? You ever ask that question? Okay, if Jesus resurrected, his body is physical, tangible, where is it now? You know, what's so important for us to know is that Jesus physically, tangibly is with the Father. And he's there on our behalf. So when he first resurrected and he showed them who he was, he was saying, look, resurrection is real. Death is in my hands. I got it. Where am I? I'm with you. Not even death can keep me from you. But where am I? I'm with my Father so I can speak on behalf of you. I'm as your advocate. They would rejoice because knowing that the Father physically is with the Son. I mean, the Son is physically with the Father speaking on our behalf. When he ascends into heaven, that's where he's going. That's what ascension is. He's tangibly there and we need him there because he is a living hope. See, hope in the heart can be diminished. It can be killed. But hope in reality, in flesh, in truth, that death can't even destroy, can never be destroyed. See, it matters, his resurrection. And not only that, but he spends a lot of time not just where he is, but what he says. Right after that, verse 20, in that day you'll know that I'm with my Father, and and you and me, and I and you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me, and who loves me will be loved. Verse 24, whoever does not love me, he says it in reverse, does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We've talked a little bit about the commandments, that Jesus is always connecting. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we talked about in any relationship, that's a normal thing. If you actually love someone, you will change your pattern of behavior. You'll change your life because of your loves. Your, any, loves does, any love does that. It changes your pattern of behavior. But I want to go a little further with that because Jesus spends more time on that here. See, what he's trying to encourage them about, how, does, how do his commandments and our love for him actually encourage them in their troubled hearts? And how does it encourage ours? Because if, if you think about commandments and I think about them, often we think, okay, if I do these things, therefore I am good with God, Right? If I think I'm doing good, then I'm good with him. But that's not true. That's not always true. Uh, someone reminded me that I told this illustration a while ago. When I was a, a campus minister uh, across the street at Vanderbilt as a, through RUF, I remember uh, sitting with a group of students, and they were talking to me about uh, how they were trying to keep each other accountable. And I, I, was, I was walking up on this conversation, and I was kind of listening in, and they go, yeah, man, I didn't have to eat the onion last night. I'm so glad I didn't have to eat the onion. And I was like, eat the onion? What is wrong with you, you know? And, and I was like, what is this onion thing? And so th- they were telling me, they said, okay, in order to keep each other accountable of things they did and did not want to do in terms of that, they looked at each other, and if you messed up, whether it was uh, lust or, or you know, anything else, you had to eat an onion. Literally take an onion like an apple and just start eating it. And they were just like, yeah, it's a man. I'm so glad I don't have to eat the onion. I said, man, that's great that you're not eating the onion, but what what is really changing in you? And I started talking to them about this, and I thought... You know, the, the bigger thing is you're, you're really hoping for behavior modification, 
You want to see that, but you're really not changing your love. You're not changing any sort of relationship you have with God. You're just hoping to avoid anything that might mess you up. I don't want to eat an onion either. I mean, who would? Do you? I mean, what I, some of you in here are like, man, maybe I should try the onion thing. 2024 onions, you know? No, I would encourage, strongly encourage you not to do that. Because what gets to the heart of it? See, why does Jesus tie love to his commandments? C.S. Lewis said this really well when he was uh, writing on the Psalms. When David says, I delight in your law, that confounded C.S. Lewis. He was like, who delights in the law? Why would he say that? Because delighting in the law, what is the law? What are the commandments? Commandments are expressive character of the one who is speaking them. You see, when you read the Ten Commandments or when you read what Jesus is talking about following his teaching, it's not just him saying, do this, do that, and have a better life. What he's actually expressing is his own character. He's giving you who he is. His word is uniquely tied to who he is. So in rejecting what it means, it's not just about us doing something. It's about going, who is he? Have you ever thought of it that way? How does David delight in the law? He delights in the law because he's delighting in the reflection of who God is in that law. That's what it is. That's what he says, keeping his commandments. And this is why it's so important for you and I to study the scripture, to study what Jesus says, not because we just need to go, okay, do we know it? Yes, we do need to know it. We need to know how to live it. And he says, love me and then do my commandments. If you love me, you will do them. How would we love him? How do we know how to love him unless we know who he is and what he expresses? You know, right after this, and he talks about teaching a lot, and he does this a ton throughout this. But then he says, if you think about this with the disciples, they'd been with him for years, right? How do they remember how to do all these things? <laughs> how in the world, like most, okay, let, let's step back for a second. So we've, we've talked a little bit about, okay, his resurrection and his commandments, but how do you keep them? It's by who Jesus sends. Because here's the kicker. Most of the time when you had a rabbi or a teacher, you work really hard at trying to take that. And if you've studied any school kind of things like Plato, Aristotle, philosophical type minds, you will see that all of them had understudies. And what was interesting from those understudies uh, in any sort of capacity is how much they divert or stay on track from where the initial teacher was. When you were under a rabbi, you tried to glean as much of the teaching as possible. And you tried to live, and you actually gave up things to walk in that way. Why was it so important for them to keep it? And how could they? How could they keep it? It's by who Jesus sends. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You know what's so different about 
Christianity, following Jesus, being an actual disciple. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, like, what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You know one of the largest difference? It's not just making sure you got all the teachings down. And it's not just you're like, I know him and I love him, but how do you? It's that Jesus and the Father send their spirit, the Holy Spirit, holy meaning separate, the third person of the Trinity to come be in you to teach you those things. That the voice of God is within you. If you are a believer and a follower of Christ, he doesn't just hope that you get it and live this life making it to heaven. He actually sends himself. This is really incredible. It's actually amazing. And it should transform the way that we pray, the way that we read scripture, and all of these things because most of the time we read them and we think them and we go, okay, I hope I get something out of it. <laughs> or we think, okay, the Holy Spirit, maybe this is a great thing, or maybe is that the little voice inside you? But what Jesus is saying is, notice, he says, bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. What is the Holy Spirit's voice? It is the commandments. It is his teaching. The Bible and the Holy Spirit, the voice is never separate from one another. Yes, the Holy Spirit isn't the Bible. God isn't the Bible, okay? But the Bible is the voice of that. So if, you're, if you ever wonder, how does the Spirit speak to me? You can always know that it's weighed by what is said through Jesus. Otherwise, we'd be really confused. Otherwise, we're like, well, he could say anything. And otherwise, the Bible could mean anything, right? But the Bible is through the Holy Spirit's voice teaching us. They go together. This is a huge difference, a huge difference of what it means to follow. <clears throat> because the Bible and the Holy Spirit are not separate. The, if we do that, the Bible can be any book, this is why, and maybe many of you are here and you're wondering, and I, I know we have people that come and, and are part of our services from time to time that may, and I wouldn't expect everybody in this room to say they are a follower of Jesus. But this is why maybe sometimes reading the Bible, you can read the Bible all you want and not follow God. Because the Holy Spirit may not be in you to say this is God's word. We can be a historian of the Bible without actually believing that it's the voice of the Lord himself speaking to us. And I know that you're a little bit like, whoa, is that, yeah, I, I believe that firmly. The Bible isn't, again, the Bible book isn't God himself, but it is where God makes himself known. He reveals himself to us. And the Holy Spirit is, and, and as the third person of the Trinity, that we often, especially in, in our circles, Presbyterianish kind of uh, Reformed theology circles, don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. And maybe don't listen enough. How important it is for us to pray that the Holy Spirit is the one whose voice speaks on our behalf for our prayers. Because sometimes, just like you, I have no idea what to say to God. And you know what the Bible tells us is that the Holy Spirit is a voice that carries our grumblings, our, our moanings, our, our strange utterances that we can't even say to God and he carries them to his ears to speak on our behalf. That's why we need the Holy Spirit because we're not always feeling like we're connected to God, but we always are. 
The Holy Spirit makes it effective. And what does he give? Verse 27, and this is almost in Greek like a strange nuance. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This is an interesting moment in this passage because when you read it, it almost seems like, is he taking a different direction here, a different section? It doesn't if you read the following. He continues to say, let your hearts not be troubled, neither be afraid. It's, It's in line with that. But why would he stop and say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you? The language of peace is usually something like a farewell or a greeting. But Jesus takes it and almost commandeers it. He inserts himself into it. Instead of saying peace of something, typically, like he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you, and let your hearts not be troubled. What he's saying, he's not just slamming the world. He's saying it's not a typical peace of, I hope things go well. Good luck to you. And may God grant you a good day. But what he's saying is, my peace, that reconciliation, and we just talked about it at Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the peace he's giving. See, here's what's fantastic about this peace. It leads us to this table. This peace tells us that this isn't a peace we can manufacture. It isn't a peace that we can manipulate with our circumstances, our feelings, and our day. This is a peace that only comes from Jesus himself. It only comes from being in relationship with him. How can he say, my peace I give to you? I not only leave with you, my peace, my peace I give to you. What is that? It's a reconciliation. It's amending of that relationship that only Jesus can do. I know this has been a bit of a drink from a fire hose, but it all comes together at this table. See, at this table, it answers the question, where is he? (laughs) Where is Jesus? He's physically with us, and he's with the Lord now speaking on our behalf, and he physically, tangibly sets a table for us so we can tangibly, what? Take the body and blood of Jesus, and by faith, he feeds us with them. He's here. He's with us. He has not left. What does he say? He gives us the command to come to this table, to take of it, to take of it. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. That's what do this means. It means we come to this table not because we always get it, but because he loves us and he wants us to see him larger. You know why we come to this? Isn't to make sure that we get in line with him. It's to see Jesus bigger. That's what the sacraments are. They're actually a magnifying glass that makes us see Jesus and our relationship with him larger and larger, bigger and bigger. Because who he sends to make this? The Holy Spirit to feed us. And what he gives from this when you leave from this table is his peace. Ways that you might not ever think. This is Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let's stand together.